Hello, I'm Marcus Railton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. This week's guest on the podcast is a real world citizen, a writer with Scots heritage, a Chinese mother and brought up in Canada. Amy McCulloch is the youngest Canadian woman to summit Mount Manaslu in the Americas. She is also the author of the best-selling novel, Breathless. Breathless is one of the most gripping thrillers of the last 12 months, and it was the Sunday Times Crime Book of the Month. Scott's Care. Hi, Amy. Hi. Hi, Marcus. How are you? Great, thank you. I'm a bit miserable out there today. I was walking the dog this morning and it was, yeah, very well, rainy and wet down here. Well, the same here. The same, do, you know, do you know what I... We decided that uh, the traffic where we live is so terrible that I was going to start running my kids to school on the bike, and I thought it's a good way to get fit. And I, my so my my older boy Noah, he goes to school on his own bike. He goes to high school, but I've got a nine year old and a, a four year old. So my four year old Indy, I got a, a seat for her and I stuck it on the back of my bike. And 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 Rafe, he cycles along beside us, and it's only two or three miles, but it kind of gets the blood flowing in the morning and puts him in a better mood but today was the first day I thought oh this is this is proper cold <laughs> I could feel it in my fingers oh yeah definitely I can imagine yeah it's just and I think it's okay for you for you know the rider but when Indy's sitting behind me and it's just it's just pouring down or a smur as you'd call it in Scotland it's just that kind of really yeah. wet rain and she got quite miserable this morning oh dear yeah. <laughs> But let, let's talk about, I want to talk about Breathless because that's been such a great success for you. And it just instantly captured my imagination as well. But this, you've written many books before that, but many of them were for children and young adults. What initially drew you to to that audience? Um, That's a good question. I think when I started writing, uh, I was actually at university. And so it was sort of a reflection of a lot of the books I was reading at the time or reading for leisure at the time. Um, I was sort of grown up on books like the Golden Compass series by Philip Pullman, uh, also the Harry Potter generation, of course. Um, the Hunger Games was really big at that time. So that kind of young adult literature um, really appealed to me. But I also loved a lot of fantasy and a lot of um, epic fantasy as sort of starts off with that um you know that that Bildungsroman you know that the young boy kind of growing up or the the chosen one kind of um trope I suppose and I loved those kind of stories but at the time I wasn't seeing a lot that was reflecting my background so my my mom is Chinese and I grew up uh, on a lot of kind of uh Chinese mythology and though at that time there wasn't a lot of um epic fantasy out there that was based on kind of more eastern cultures I suppose so that that's sort of what I wanted to to start out doing that's what my initial kind of spark was was to write a book that I I wasn't finding on the shelves to read myself um, and that became my kind of first published novel and I actually loved writing for children and young adults because um, they're a great audience you know they 
Um, I used to go out to schools all the time and and talk to kids and you have to be able to capture their attention really immediately and keep them turning the pages. And so I found it quite um, rewarding to to write for that audience. But yeah. when it came to Breathless, um, it couldn't be the the inspiration for it, the way it came about just couldn't be for, for, for young adults. And it was quite daunting to think about changing genres sort of midway through my career. Well, well this is it, isn't it? And, and I was thinking about, I actually think in many ways it's more difficult to write for young adults because they are complicated little people. And as they you are. said, <laughs> you've got to, cap, you know, they, they don't really have a lot of tolerance for bullshit. So certainly, you know, my 13 year old doesn't, you know, he, you have to, and and because they're of this generation where it's going to be next, 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 it's all YouTube. So you, as you said, you've got to capture them from the outset and keep their interest, which I I think is a more difficult ask in many, many ways. Yeah, absolutely. You're competing with, you know, video games and streaming services and television. And um, yeah, you have to be able to instantly draw a a young adult teenager in and and as you said keep them t- turning those pages and so it's it's sort of a, an interesting um but ultimately once you've hooked a child onto your story you know you won't get a more devoted fan and that's when you uh really see how how you know wonderful it is to write for for that age group once you get it right you know the the messages that i receive or talking to them about how books have imp- books that they love have impacted them um that's what makes me kind of want to write more and more. Is it quite a healthy audience at the moment? Because a lot of times I'll say to my my, my sons will say to me, oh, have you seen this film? And I've said, no, I've not seen the film, but I've read the book. And they'll go, it's a book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, you know, I say, yes, here is the book. Go and read it. You know, get off your screens. Is Are there still enough kids reading books out there? Uh, well, I think actually it's, it's interesting because um, I know with, TikTok, it's really changed the way that that audiences find books. So in a way, there's been a, a kind of a resurgence of some sometimes older books or books that might have um, not had that huge media attention the first time around that have kind of stormed onto the bestseller lists. And um, a lot of those are, are books that, um, you, you know, appeal to 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 kids who are struggling with their identity. So I know that a lot of the LGBTQ books are, are really big at the moment. Um, books that that deal with like like hearts heartstoppers. You know, the, there's a Netflix series that that yeah. became really massive. So I do think there is a big reading audience out there, but the way that they're finding books is changing. Now for you, this must have been a bit of a busman's holiday because <laughs> you you were working in publishing, and then you know you work in nine till five or eight till six. You know, you're doing a full day. And then coming home and then writing. Where did, how I just, you know, a lot of the time I just want to pour a glass of wine and watch a telly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's something, as I said, I've been writing since university. And, and so I was always used to kind of squeezing writing into those times where I was, um, you know, after I'd finished my assignments or the, you know, when I was just, just had a moment to grab a coffee or something, I would always be scribbling in my notebook and, uh, when I needed to go out into the real world and kind of find a, a job, I knew I loved working with books. So kind of publishing was a natural fit for me. But again, I was still writing. But often instead of going straight home after work, I would stop off at a cafe and I would be one of those, you know, really cliched people kind of typing on their laptop in Starbucks in the corner, <laughs> um, just trying to squeeze an extra hour or two of writing into my day. But I think what I always say is that um, 
even if I wasn't a published author, even if this writing career wasn't going anywhere, I would still be a writer. That's just, it's, it's almost like part of my DNA. It's something that I am. I love telling stories. Um, even if I was the only person to end up reading them. So I think, you know, it's it's both my, my hobby and my work now. Um, it's something I love. And now it's the way that I make my income. So in a way, I'm really privileged. But um, yeah, when I was working full time, it was just squeezing writing into to any spare moment that I had. Now, the breathless, like you said, is not it's not a young adult book. It was a change of genre for you. And and the way it came about is such a, I, I don't want to say fantastic story, but it is a fantastic <laughs> story because there was a massive negative side to it. But it came about because because you got divorced and you were going through yeah. such a, a, a tough time in your life. And you decided, am I right in saying that you decided that instead of wallowing in it, you know, and just putting the dressing gown on or a onesie on <laughs> and just sitting and binge eating ice cream, you decided to get out and walk. That's exactly right. Um, it was a really difficult period in my life because I, I had only been married for a year. We'd been together for 10 years. Um, and it, so it kind of blindsided me because I really thought that I had, you know, I knew which path my life was going on, if you know what I mean. I sort of had had the relationship and the engagement, the wedding. I thought family was going to be in my near future. And all of a sudden that was sort of ripped away from me and I didn't know what direction to turn in and not only that but I was struggling a little bit in my writing career I'd come to the end of a book contract and I didn't seem to have any new ideas and really felt like all around my grand plans for my life had had crumbled um and I didn't know what to do with myself and I I'd actually moved back I'm, I'm from Canada originally um and I'd moved back to Canada but was completely untethered didn't my 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 family weren't there anymore you know I didn't have any real friends over there um and I just decided you know what this is an opportunity for me just to put myself in the way of beauty it was sort of that Cheryl Strait I don't know if you've read Wild or or seen the the Reese Witherspoon movie Wild but she talks about go, how going on a long walk really helped her overcome some difficult life challenges and I thought that's kind of what I need, but maybe not as extreme as the the Pacific Coast Trail initially. And I found the longest Waymark Trail in Ireland, which is called the Kerry Way. Uh, and literally the day after my husband, uh, ex-husband left, I uh, flew out to, to Dublin, got on a train to Kerry and started walking. Um, and I just fell in love with where my feet could take me. It just what I was seeing, how I was able to kind of remain present. You know, I wasn't on my phone all the time. I wasn't worrying about the future. All I was thinking about was what, you know, the next step kind of, you know, one foot in front of the other. And I really, at the end of it, fell, had fallen in love with walking. Um, and then so I decided that the next trip I was going to take was to Nepal to do uh, one of the classic treks there, the Annapurna circuit. Um, so again, on my own, I flew out there and uh started walking um and that's where I kind of saw these big mountains for the first time and really would just fell in love with that landscape now can I ask you about I I read a lot about you before we had a chat today and you know the walking comes up and I don't think that I think it works for you and it's interesting to hear what you're saying there is that allowed you to have a detachment and to think of other things and I think for me it made me think of when my mum passed away mm. and 
and unless my brain was very busy, it kept on returning to her at that yeah. point. And and what I'm not very good at is like is while I enjoy exercise, I'm not terribly good at something that doesn't completely either exhaust me or take up all my brain space. And my worry with walking, and I, I at that point I was I tried yoga, but I felt that every time I was still, all I would do is like if I was looking at the ceiling or looking at the floor, my brain would just immediately shift back to the negative thoughts about my mum passing away. So I, I found it really interesting that you you gave yourself all this time but you weren't you, you you were more positive about it you didn't you didn't walk for miles dwelling on the negative yeah that's true i mean to be honest with you uh, i wasn't a big walker before this so for me walking uh at that time was 30 35 kilometers a day that was totally exhausting me that's a long um, way it, it was a long way each day um the carry was i think 220 kilometers or something and i was did it over period of 10 or 11 days so I was walking you know a fair distance each way and and what I loved was that I was coming to the end of it because for me that you know the daytime seeing the 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 beautiful coastline everything that was distracting enough but the the nights were the worst time for me um that's when I would have my mind racing um when I would you know feel most kind of depressed and 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 really unable to shake the kind of negative self-talk and uh so arriving to a bed after having walked for 30 kilometers and just allowing my body to kind of exhaust itself and and, and actually sleep properly um that was what was most beneficial for me and I think what helped me um kind of remain positive and, and feel almost rejuvenated or at least ex you know at least hopeful for the future um at the end of it uh just giving my my mind and my body time to rest i think mm -hmm. was the most important thing and and exercise really um and walking was the key to that did you know scots care can help second and even third generation scots break the cycle of deprivation key services include financial grants mental health support social events for the scots community and more have you seen stuts on netflix have i seen what sorry it's called stuts it's it's oh, no. I know it's a really odd title. It's it's the actor Jonah Hill, okay. and he's interviewing his therapist. And it's just when it, what you just said made me think of it. And and it's it's all shot in black and white. It's very intimate, and it's just Jonah Hill interviews his therapist and films one session. And he and Phil Stutz is this psychiatrist, and he talks about the the first thing you can do if you're feeling directionless or if you don't know where you're mm. going to go next is to get your 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 life force back on track and it's and I thought oh that sounds kind of what you were talking about and what you tried to do there and he was he's talking about the first step of recovery and it's a great documentary he draws out this triangle and he puts three lines through it and the bottom level is your relationship to your physical body mm. and he says he says this is 85 percent of the way to recovery and Jonah Hill goes, wow, that, that's amazing. And I think that's true. I think if you can get your physical body, you know, eat well, exercise, then that's great. And then he moves up a level and he says, the next one is your relationship to people. And don't isolate yourself when you're mm -hmm. going through grief or you're going through trauma. You've got to get out there and have lunch with someone, maybe even someone you, you don't particularly love or like, but just have that kind of people interaction. And then at the top level, he talks about your relationship to yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and within that, he, he says, 
one of the most important things you can do is get a journal and start to write. Because when you start to write, what will come out is how you truly feel about stuff. Is, do you yeah. agree with that? I, I do agree with that, definitely. Um, I, and I think that that's important because I think sometimes your your own mind kind of shields you from, um, you know, what it considers traumatic events or, or you know, things that you, it, it, or tries to stop you from kind of wallowing in the depression, but also dealing with it, I suppose, in a lot of ways. And that's what um, physical exercise for me and, and walking uh, unlocked was this um, just this sort of ability to kind of really feel properly I know that sounds really strange but by the by the end of uh each day um I was sort of really able to kind of deal with the big emotions that I was that I was feeling and, and thinking about and um I think that helped me uh as I say find that new direction change paths and and tackle the the next big challenge in my life which which turned out to be this mountaineering uh journey that I went on um and and really feel uh that what happened what that what had felt so negative to me that happened to me could actually end up being um a positive thing when you went to nepal mm -hmm. was it at that point because i've there's a beautiful video on your website um which is shot in nepal and it's of you there and i get why you thought this was such an amazing place because even watching the video the, the scenery is stunning and was it at that point was it was it a slow fermentation that you wanted to start actual mountaineering or was there a kind of light bulb moment at that point where you says, I I'm going to, I'm going to climb a mountain. <laughs> it was a little bit of a light bulb. Um, on the Annapurna circuit, you, you go up to about five and a half thousand meters, um, which is a very decent high altitude um, uh, destination. You know, you, you, you can experience severe altitude sickness at that height. You have to, to acclimatize, even though it's just a, a trek and a very popular one. Um, and I discovered that I actually handled the high altitude zones really well. My body seemed to have this capability to, um, to be strong, to, to continue to, to, to handle, um, you know, the, the intensity of the walk really well, even at high altitude. And I mean, it was a comment that my guide at the time who I was with made to me, you know, that, that I started off really slow kind of in the beginning. And then the higher we got almost the, the, the more strength I seemed to have. And it kind of sparked this curiosity in me um, about how, how high maybe I would be able to go. Um, but I didn't have any idea where to start. Um, but it just so happened that I, I met somebody uh, who had been doing a little bit of mountaineering. He'd just come back from Kilimanjaro when uh, we first met. And he and some of his friends had been talking about potentially how to climb Mount Everest one day. Um, and having just come back from Nepal, I was I thought, oh wow, that's really, that's really interesting. You know, I would love to to know what that pathway is to climb Mount Everest. Something I had never considered uh in my life that that would be something that I would be capable of, not not even a remote possibility. And together we went to a mountain in Morocco called Tubkal, which is uh, the highest mountain in North Africa in the Atlas Mountains. And we ended up summiting on New Year's Day 2018. Uh, so as the sun was rising on a new year, uh, we were at the summit and just watching the sun come up over the Sahara Desert and the Atlas Mountains. And it was one of the most difficult 
things I'd ever done. I really challenged and pushed my body, but the reward, the summit was so incredible um, that I kind of caught this summit fever. I thought, this is just, this is the best thing. Mm. Um, and, and the guide on that trip had summited Everest several times and had got, led expeditions on Everest. He was the youngest British man to climb Everest from both the North and South side. So he was the perfect person to ask for advice as to how someone who, like me, who Tube Cal, you know, that was my first ever summit, my first mountaineering experience, how I could one day climb Mount Everest. And he said, you know, there's a few things you need to consider. You need to consider how your body handles extreme high altitude. So you need to test yourself on higher and higher peaks. So I already knew how well I did at about 5,000 meters. So I needed to climb something that was more like six, seven, you know, work my way up um, and see how, how my body handled that. Then I needed to see how I could handle expedition life because one of the hardest things about doing a Mount Everest expedition isn't necessarily the climb to the top of the mountain. It's the fact that you have to spend months on end living in a tent on a glacier, you know, with people you don't know, um, without running water, you know, in quite extreme conditions. And that isn't for everybody. Yeah, yeah um, definitely not. <laughs> no, de definitely not. Exactly. And and then the third one, of course, for Mount Everest, especially, is that you have to um, have a lot of money <laughs> or yeah. be able to save up a lot of money because a, a Mount Everest expedition uh, can be upwards of fifty to sixty thousand um, wow. dollars yeah so that that sort of put a damper on that trip on that um, uh, on the idea of Mount Everest but the idea of, of mountaineering and of keeping on testing myself at high altitude that that was really appealing um, so I decided that I would try one more expedition and see see how I did and that was uh, to Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in the Americas um, on the the Argentinian-Chilean border. Um, and when I was looking for a guide for this, I had kind of known that I'd wanted to go back to Nepal eventually and maybe climb in Nepal, maybe not Everest necessarily, but I wanted to get to know the, the a potential guide in Nepal, uh, especially if I was going to climb with a Sherpa who, um, you know, I, who I would be dependent on with, for my life, essentially, I, I wanted to to have known them and climbed with them beforehand. So I was looking up Nepali guides who would lead expeditions in Argentina. And that's when I came across uh, Nims Dai, who had just started his uh, expedition company. At that time, it was called Elite Himalayan Expeditions. And he was running a, an Aconcagua trip. And it was like the perfect timing and he was kind of an unknown at that point in the mountaineering world, but he had been setting a couple of records on Everest. You know, he was a former Gurkha SBS soldier. Um, so he had all these credentials. And when we chatted over initially over the phone and then on the Internet, it it he seemed like a really like a person I would really trust in the mountains, despite not having um, had his expedition company for that long. So uh, kind of took a chance on that, really, and and booked this trip with him and his guiding team. Um, and it ended up, be, you know, setting, setting off this um, incredible uh, experience climbing with this man who would go on, of course, to star in the 14 Peaks Netflix yes, um, yes. series and and just kind of shake up the mountaineering world in, in, a, in a whole, uh, you know, he 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 has changed the way people approach mountaineering and in, in kind of to its foundations um 
And at that point, he hadn't done his his big project. He was in the planning stages. And after we climbed Aconcagua together in probably some of the worst conditions that you can imagine, it was, you know, minus 40 degrees. It was blowing a gale. Um, but somehow he led us all to the summit uh, and back down safely because getting back down is just as important. Um, he in, he said, look, I'm I'm trying to do this break this re- this world record i'm trying to summit all the 14 peaks in the shortest amount of time possible uh, i want to lead a team on one of the mountains that's Manaslu. um would you like to come along and for me it felt like an opportunity i couldn't say no to because not only was i going to have the experience to climb an 8000 meter mountain in nepal but i was also going to be able to witness kind of history being made and um, was that and a, was that a big step up? Because that Manaslu is the eighth <laughs> highest peak in the world. Yeah, is that suddenly you 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 know you're playing in the lower leagues and all of a sudden you've been subbed on in the Premiership? Yeah, it's a massive step up, definitely. I mean, I mean, especially going from uh, having only done my first ever mountain you know, earlier that same year to then climbing an eight thousand meter peak the year after. That is a very very very. Um, Big jump, a rapid rise is my pun. <laughs> rapid, that's a nice way to put it. Can I ask yeah, you something about watching. something you said when when you were talking about Manaslu? Is you said the air was there, it just wasn't doing what it was supposed to. What does that yeah. mean? Yeah. Uh, well, that's what I was. My way of trying to explain what it's like uh, up in in the death zones. The death zone is um, anything above eight thousand meters, which is generally where it's considered impossible to acclimatize. So your body will never um, be able to uh, um, to survive above above 8,000 meters for very long. So every time, every minute you spend up there, your 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 brain cells are dying. But but for me, it was hard to imagine what that was like until, of course, I got up there into the death zone itself. Um, and that was when I could, you know, it wasn't as if Sometimes people compare it to scuba diving or, you know, the, this idea of not being able to kind of um, catch your breath. The, the idea that there's not enough oxygen in the air is kind of difficult to conceptualize because it it actually does feel like there is there is air around you. It doesn't you don't feel like you're gasping necessarily. Mm. That's not what that's not what it felt like for me. It felt like I was trying to breathe normally. And yet and yet it wasn't my body just wasn't functioning properly, you know. Every step that I took seemed to take um, twice, three times as long. Sometimes I watch videos of myself at that altitude and you think, why aren't you moving normally? You know, why, why is it taking you so long to un, you know, un, um, unclip the water, you know, the, the top of your water bottle so you can take a drink? Why is it taking you so long to remove your gloves? And that, that's the lack of oxygen. It's like, as I said, the air is there. You can feel it. The wind is buffeting you. You know, you can you can feel it and enter your lungs, but it just isn't enabling your body. You know, the oxygen is not getting to your muscles, to your to your cells to enable you to do what you would normally do at, at a much lower altitude. It's a very, when, very strange feeling. And when you summited that, that that was that became a record. You were the, the youngest Canadian mm-hmm. woman. Do you still hold that? The youngest Canadian woman to <laughs> to summit Manaslu. Is that still your record? Well, it technically so that Manaslu is a very interesting mountain. It's been in the news quite a lot this year. Um, it there was a bit of controversy over where the real summit of Manaslu is or was. Um, 
according to the Himalayan database, yes, I am still the youngest Canadian woman to summit Mount Manaslu. But since that time, in fact, last year, they've actually changed the position of where the summit was. So if you're an extreme mountaineering purist, then I, I was maybe two or three meters beneath the summit. Okay. <laughs> so I haven't summited the mountain, but he, but it actually discounted um, this change of the summit, discounted the records of um, all but three mountaineers um in, in history so even reynold messner who is the you know the, the the kind of legend of the mountaineering world this incredible man who summited the 14 without oxygen um his record was stripped from him because he he actually hasn't summited the true summit of manaslu uh -huh. which was only established um and is now the the kind of established summit going forward um, so, so the answer is yes and no. According to the Himalayan database, yes. According to the new height of the uh, summit of Manaslu going forward, no. Did you know Scots Care provides homes for older Scots across London? If you or yours are finding it hard to find a home, we've close on a hundred high-quality sheltered housing flats to help make a fresh start. Can I ask you aside from the? Aside from the physical achievement, because it's stunning, it's it's a mind blowing achievement. Did you have? Was there a spiritual moment for you as well? Because when I look at the pictures of you there and the pictures of you in Nepal, it seems a very spiritual area. And then I just wonder if there was a, a, a like a cathartic moment of freedom where you could kind of shake off your past. I mean, maybe I'm being too <laughs> too spiritual. I just wondered if you felt anything more than the physical achievement. Oh. Absolutely. Um, before any summit or any mountaineering expedition in Nepal, you experience something called a puja ceremony, which is a um, a blessing where you're asking the mountain for for its blessing to climb. And uh, a llama comes up from the local village. Um, there's a fire. Um, they chant to the mountain. And you, you and you put offerings down and you um, lay down. Uh, some of your equipment, often the equipment that will come into contact with the mountain, so your boots or your ice axe, um, and and you ask for those pieces of equipment to be blessed. But what it was for me, I was sitting on some mats just behind the the llama as he was sort of pounding his drum and and reading this from this incredibly intricate um, scroll and chanting. Um, that was for me probably my most impactful moment on the mountain. So I hadn't even um, set foot on the actual mountain itself. I was only at base camp. I hadn't climbed camp one yet, but already I was feeling like my trip to the mountain had been worth it. So even if I didn't make the summit, I mean, I had no idea at that point whether I would be capable or not, whether the weather would allow us or not, you know, whether the Manazu is very prone to avalanches whether whether there would be it would be a bad avalanche season or not all of these things that I couldn't con that were out of my control um you know I had no idea if I would make the summit but sitting there listening to the llama watching the kind of clouds disperse over the the summit of Manazu um, and the kind of sun stream down on us that for me was um such an impactful moment and I thought wow, if if my life hadn't gone the way that, you know, if I hadn't experienced um, all the negative things, all the, all the things that I thought would break me, um, I would never have found myself in that place. And that was enough. That was enough to have made that journey worthwhile. And 
yeah, it was a very spiritual um, and an important moment for me. Uh, and I think what what I've read is this: this is where you came up with a pr- plot for breathless and it was. Water, waterstones of <laughs> it's the waterstone thrill of the month book the sunday times crime book of the month can without ruining the plot which you obviously won't do can you give us a clue <laughs> can you give us a kind of pressy of what breathless is about yeah absolutely so when i was at base camp uh one of the things that was you know there's a lot of waiting around at base camp that's the one thing that i didn't realize about mountaineering is that actually there's a lot of downtime and a lot of time where you're waiting you know to summit or you're waiting for your body to acclimatize so for me as a writer that was when my kind of imagination was running wild and i realized then that that how perfect a base camp was as a setting for a thriller particularly because not only are you facing the environmental dangers you know the the crevasses the avalanche potential um, the lack of oxygen, the high altitude sickness. There are no authority figures on the mountain. There's no police presence. There's no one investigating. Um, and also you're there on the mountain with, you know, these strangers, people that you don't know who have come from all different backgrounds with a lot of different motivations for the reasons why they're 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 there, why they're climbing. And it was really fascinating to me how, you know, if someone had nefarious um intentions how easily it would be to kind of get away with murder on the mountain um and so that was sort of what sparked what sparked breathless so breathless follows the journey of uh, a journalist who is covering a story of a, a legendary mountaineer who is attempting to break a world record on the on, on the mountain and there are a series of kind of unfortunate uh, incidents that lead to to fatalities on the mountain that are just written off as accidents, as something that is an, a natural part of what happens on these mountaineering expeditions. But Cecily begins to wonder if there isn't something more happening and whether she's not just facing um, a killer climb, but also a killer on the mountain. I just want to go dum dum dum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This, do you know what? It's you know when I read the jacket of the book and, and looked at the press release and stuff, I thought, oh, this has got film written all over it. Lots of suspects, <laughs> no authority figures, an amazing yeah. landscape, the jeopardy of the actual climb. Have Have you been approached by um any TV or film studios? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I have a film agent, and we've been talking with um various uh different networks uh actually it's, been, it's interesting because a lot of it has been tv related which i find fascinating because i thought it would maybe be a bit more filmic but the way that obviously we consume media nowadays um the streaming services are sort of where it's at i suppose so when it can the film and tv world and this idea that you could really explore each of the the different climbers and their motivations in episodes before kind of leading up to that that dramatic conclusion where where it all comes together and there also aren't that many mountaineering films or movie uh, films or series or books um either that feature women as the kind of central protagonist uh and that was something that was important to me as well um so it would be great to see it one day um dramatized <laughs> that would be fantastic and and will there be a follow-up uh, there is a follow-up. It's not, a, and it's not a sequel, but it is a very kind of similar feeling book. It's called Midnight. It'll be out next summer, uh, and it's set in Antarctica, which is another place that I was lucky enough to visit in 2016. Um, and so, all of my books going forward, I think, are going to be these kind of um, women 
in extraordinary places um doing doing things that push the boundaries uh so i've got a, a marathon de saab book as well so that's the the marathon through the sahara desert the the 250 kilometer which, <laughs> which you actually did desert. you're not just writing about this you actually i i've i've watched that on the telly and it's it's a phenomenal feat isn't it yeah i did that this past april um and it was again this uh life-changing kind of event uh, experience that i never thought i would be capable of doing but um if there's one thing that 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 mountaineering manaslu and breathless has taught me it's that um i should never put any limits on what i think i'm capable of <laughs> amy thank you for chatting to me today it's, it's been really good and I, I wish you the best for the future thank you so much marcus it's been great fun speak to you later daddy bye okay bye bye scots care Supporting London Scots with financial grants, welfare advice, counselling, sheltered housing, jobs coaching and family support. <laughs>